So what we've learned is that timing that market, trying to figure out when it is that everybody dumps their stock, if a lot of people on the radio are saying the, the stock market's overpriced, that's a counter argument not to sell. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, uh, presupposing that you were listening in the first hour to uh, a welcome back to a second hour of the personal wealth coach. I notice I didn't call it exciting. Yes, it is. It's exciting. It's exciting to us because we can really seriously make ourselves look horrible on the air or sound horrible can't really make ourselves look horrible on the radio, can we? Yeah, we can. I suppose we can. <laughs> so it's people very have, exciting for us. People have mental images of us. They've this, already up enough that I think that they see two old bald guys. Well, one old bald guy and one not so old bald guy. Well, I don't know. It depends on your definition of old because there's a lot of people that would consider me old. I your don't daughter. Know. My daughter thinks that I am ancient. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this is the personal wealth coach. This is Jake McClure, and the other, the older bald guy is Jeff McClure. Uh, just for those of you who don't know this, Jeff McClure is my dad. I'm Jake McClure, and we've been working together now. This is great. We just passed the anniversary. Thirty years. Thirty years we, we've been working together, and we haven't killed each other, and we haven't had a divorce. Not more than once. With the killing part, anyway. I haven't well, I haven't been killed more than one time. I haven't been killed even once. So I guess we're doing okay. Well, see, I didn't say I had been killed one time. I just said I hadn't been killed more than one time. All right. What you can do, if you want to inject some sensibility into our otherwise probably nonsensical discussion. We might have to have a disclosure on that, too. I'm not sure that they can add sensibility into our conversation. Well, they can try. They can send us an email to either Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. At some point, we're going to be able to take telephone calls again, maybe, hopefully, perhaps. Maybe under- even February, maybe March. It'd be nice. Um, we, we've just got some hardware stuff we're working out. Let's talk about the economy. The The lead story in the economy this last week was the fact that there were 960,668 new claims for unemployment. Now, you may not follow those numbers. They may not be the most exciting thing that you've heard recently, but let me put it this in, put this in a little bit of context. The average before the pandemic for layoffs, these are layoffs when we have unemployment, new claims for unemployment insurance. Those are layoffs from people who are regularly employed. They don't count the people who are self-employed. They don't count the people who are contractors working on construction sites and so on. We're up nearly a million people a week being laid off. During the period before the pandemic, the average was around 200,000. So we have approximately five times the number of people being laid off every week right now that we had before the pandemic hit. That's pretty serious business. And I realize the unemployment numbers are gradually coming down, but there's a lot of indication right now. They were, by the way, much lower. We were down in the 600,000 range a week per week uh, back in October and November, and now we're up to nearly a million. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is we're having a second surge, a 
second major surge in the coronavirus. And as, we, as the every time somebody gets coronavirus and they're working in a factory or something, it slows that factory down. And every time somebody uh, gets sick and dies or whatever that you know, really gets sick and dies when people know that, that, begin, that makes them less likely to come to work, less likely to go out and buy things. So the economy is under some degree of threat right now, the United States economy. Uh, and this is kind of an important thing to recognize. This is going on in the background. It's the 900-pound gorilla or the 600-pound gorilla. However, however, how much does the gorilla weigh, by the way? Do you remember? Um, I, I, let's just talk about the elephant. Let's just talk about the elephant in the room. That, that way we can mix our metaphors and not have to worry about their weight. Yeah, but the elephant in the room doesn't necessarily have a lot of effect on what else goes on in the room, whereas the gorilla in the room does. Uh, anyway, the gorilla in the room that basically is having an effect on everything else that's going on is the coronavirus pandemic. And there's an aspect of this that is very worrying, and there's an aspect of this that, that we can be very optimistic about. The thing to worry about at this point, and we are always concerned about things that are likely to come along that will hit us that are, that are worthy of worry, is that there's a new variant, and it, by the way, has been reported in Texas now, that is about 50% more transmittable than the old one, which means that there will be more people getting infections, which is what we're seeing across the country. More than that, reports out of England, where it was first identified, indicate that it is about 30 to 40% more likely to cause death than the than the the variant that we started with, the variant we are used to working with right now. In other words, this thing will probably, according to the CDC, become dominant in this new variant, will become dominant in the United States sometime around March. When that happened in England, there was a 50% increase in hospitalizations. In Bell, in the Bell County area, and I, Bell County is a section of the, of the state, it is in a section of the state where uh, that's tracked for what's going on in the hospitals. It's an area, it's a region where people can be transferred from one hospital to another. I think, as I recall yesterday, they were reporting they had a whopping three ICU beds open in the entire region right now. They're three, all filled up. All filled up, and most of them are filled up with coronavirus people. We are teetering on the edge. Uh, of, we have, we've had about 260 people in, in Bell County die of this now. It is definitely a serious threat, and we need to be very, very careful. And the reason we bring this up is it has a direct effect on the economy. And it is this new variant, as it comes out, is likely to hit us, and it's likely to hit us and cause possibly a panic. It possibly could be the thing that triggers a stock market correction. So that's the negative side of things. But the positive side of things is the vaccinations are here. Yeah, now that both of us a, have had our first vaccination. I, I, I'm on the Moderna and you're on the Pfizer. Just just as a side note, I have not eaten more than one human since I got the shot. So I haven't even eaten one human, as a matter of fact. I haven't turned into a zombie yet. We'll let you know if I do. I might let you know by trying to eat you, but so far, so good. There's a negative to this too, because uh, the the head of public health, I think his name is Taylor, in the state of Texas, um, announced, in, and I have this somewhere in my files here, that we're on we're on distribution 1B right now, which is people 65 and older who have, or people who have comorbidities. And Co comorbidity, what a fun thing to, 
Do you have comorbidity? I do. Uh, I have comorbidity. It's just a fun word. Well, the point is that it's going to be, he said, probably June or July before they move to the general population for vaccinations. So this, what I'm trying to say is we need to be careful to protect ourselves in the population right now that we don't spread it. I know there's people who object to wearing masks, but I can tell you that there's a lot of studies out right now that you look at populations of people who wear masks and the people who don't, and the people who wear masks spread the virus much more slowly than the people who don't wear masks. Uh, as a matter of fact, the masks are being given credit for the fact that the United States, with a much smaller population, has a much higher incidence and a much higher number of people who contracted coronavirus, whereas in India, where you get a, you can be fined rather substantially in their currency for not wearing a mask in public, they have had a much smaller number of people who've contracted coronavirus, despite the fact they're packed together and there's no way in the world they can maintain social distancing. So we're not saying this for a political reason. There's nothing political about it. It's just that we want to protect ourselves. We want to protect the people around us. And yeah. to the degree that we in the United States get serious about treating this pandemic as a national emergency and taking precautions not to spread it, because here's the problem. I could have coronavirus right now and not know it. I could be a asymptomatic, contagious person going around spreading, and all I have to do is be in a room with people and talk for a while. This is not a good thing, and yeah. we need to and to keep this from happening. Now, here's the good news. As we get into, as we get into more vaccinations, as we defeat this thing, there's a tremendous amount of money on the sidelines, and we've said this before, but it's important to recognize. We have both personally and at the corporate level, there's a tremendous amount of money that's built up in savings that once this crisis is perceived as over, is going to be spent. So how do we know it's going to be spent? Because people have asked, what happens when the crisis is over? And people inevitably and corporations inevitably say, there's a lot of things I'm going to do that I haven't done. There's a lot of hiring I'm going to do that I haven't done. So there's a big boom coming in the second half of the year. It's just a matter of waiting it out. Now, the market may or may not respond to the to the second wave when it hits us, but there's a lot of good news down the road. I and I don't we don't talk about often say we, we a lot of times at the bottom of a bear market we'll say something like we think this is over, but it's very rare that we say hey we see a tremendous boom coming in the near future. We we don't like to predict booms. We don't like to predict bears, but but we're doing it. We're predicting we, a boom. Want to do it? This is the first time I recall ever having done this. I'm going to say in the short term, there's going to be some bad news, almost certainly. In the longer term, there's going to be some excellent news, and that's one of the reasons the market is up. There, there's this common approach when we say things like that. We got a question about it last hour. If we think the market's overpriced and it's going to have a dip, and then we think it's going to boom, why is it we're not selling out of the market and then waiting and then buying it? And I get that from a lot of engineers who look at it as physics. This is not physics. This is one of those fascinating things. The stock market is a crowd. It's a massive bunch of people who are not all communicating with each other that are kind of trying to read each other's 
intentions based on their own expectations. And that sounds like I'm talking convoluted stuff here. Crowds are not predictable. Just, I mean, President Trump understands that now. Uh, There was no part of his speech on January 6th where he said, break into the Capitol building and physically stop the vote. He said some things that are normal political rhetoric, and it led to a crowd going way overboard. Whose fault is that? That's, that's something for another group. What's more interesting to me as a behavioral economist is to say something very clear about this. Crowds are not predictable. And it comes back, people try to predict crowds regularly in the stock market. They say, I'm going to get in before everybody. I'm going to get out before everybody. This is a great one. Um, I heard this from a, a guy that I consider to be fairly, in, more than fairly, quite intelligent. And this was from back in March. I did a really smart thing. This is a quote. I did a really smart thing and I went up and I, I went out and I bought a whole bunch of toilet paper before anybody else did. And I think a lot of people listening to this would say, oh, that sounds, oh, he must have been ahead of the curve. How did he do that? That's a great idea. He, he got it before everybody else. He must be really smart. Except that the whole reason that we had a shortage in toilet paper, which caused everybody else to say, I should have gotten out, gone out and gotten it, was because people went out and bought a lot more toilet paper than they needed. So was it smart that he got the toilet paper before the shortage, or did he create the shortage by getting toilet paper? And that's the thing about crowds. Toilet paper is a great example here. If you expect toilet paper to go away and you go out and you buy a bunch of toilet paper, and then for the next three months, you're sitting high and, and, and happy because you bought toilet paper before everybody else, That seems like a great idea, except that what if nobody else went out and bought a whole bunch of toilet paper? Now you're sitting on a bunch of toilet paper. Hopefully it didn't cost you a whole lot more than usual, but there was no shortage. And that is the norm in in the marketplace, is that people predict a shortage that doesn't occur or predict a glut that doesn't occur. And when you're trying to do that based on things that don't have to do with manufacturing numbers, that don't have to do with profitability. You're just doing it based on, I think too many people have bought this or I think too many people are about to buy this, so I'm going to sell it now. You can, you can do it and do it well if you spend your entire life focused on it This is why mutual fund managers get paid a huge amount of money. This is why hedge fund managers get paid a huge amount of money. But if you read the newspapers, even if they're online for very long, you'll find out that nobody makes the call correctly every time. In fact, a really good mutual fund manager, a really good portfolio manager is right about 40% of the time. Four zero. And that includes Warren Buffett. If you look at what Warren Buffett buys and what pans out at the end of it, he's right about 40% of the time. And that's enough. The not so good folks are right about 10% of the time. <laughs> 
And and that's really the thing is that timing the market, we think, and I'm in total agreement with you. I believe that we're going to have some rough, rough times ahead before we have really, really good times. But we don't know how long the rough times will last and we might skip to rough times in the market. The economy might have a really tough, tough time and the market just keeps rising like what we had since March. Or we could see a dip in the market. And if you jump out of the market right now and then get back in later when it's higher, you're not going to think it's a great idea to jump out of the market next time. So what we've learned is that timing that market, trying to figure out when it is that everybody dumps their stock, if a lot of people on the radio are saying the the stock market's overpriced, that's a counter argument not to sell. (laughs) It's crazy. It's it's very crazy. Uh, You you. Looked like you had something you wanted to add in there. Well, there's a couple of aspects of this. One, there are sections of the market that are undervalued right now, we think, or at least fairly valued. And it's a good idea to be in there. And that's generally where we are, by the way. Um, and there's sections of the market that are overvalued. That doesn't mean that when the overvalued sections take a nosedive, the undervalued sections won't take a nosedive with it. But they don't dive generally. Historically, they haven't dived as far. And they uh, come back quicker when they're already setting at the bottom and when when you're when you're it's kind of like jumping out the window of a building if you're on the 10th floor and you jump out the window of the building at the end the end result is not going to be very pleasant however trying if you're trying to commit suicide and you jump out the first floor window it's probably not going to do you're not going to be very effective but you can say you jumped out the window of the building anyway we're we like to be on the first floor with our investments um second floor at worst and that tends to uh, that tends to say if you're patient, then things will work out pretty well. Right. It's and, really, you know, it is really really hard right now in the middle of a bull market to do that. Yeah, uh, I agree. There's something else I wanted to talk about this hour. We alluded to it last hour, uh, and that's real estate. Are you up for that? Sure, I'm up for several other things too. Yeah, we we have some really interesting news that have come out that has come out on um on real estate we we just hit a record 14 year record it's not record record 14 years back to 2006 existing home sales in the united states have reached their highest level in 14 years why well i think this has to do with the the vaccines on the horizon so people are who have been waiting to sell their house are doing it uh, part of the reason why the prices for houses have been going up is that people have been staying in their houses longer and longer. Wall Street Journal did an article this week on that, that uh, the length of time that people have been in their house has been going up drastically for the last about 15 or 16 years. People bought their house. They said, this is the last house I'll be in, and they're still there. We also have extra expense in building houses because we're short on manpower or people power. Uh, We're short on lumber because of trade wars and because of forest fires. And you put that all together and new houses are more expensive. Existing houses are not coming on the market as fast as they used to. So we have a shortage of supply and the demand is still there. People still want to buy a house. So millennials are buying their, their first houses now. And uh, so that's causing prices to be up. That's not even talking about 
interest rates being as low as they are, there's a lot of money waiting out there to be loaned. And that causes housing prices to go up. With interest rates low and a lot of money available to loan, there's also a lot of money that is being put into these houses. This is not, a, even though we're wait, we're going back to 2006 to see the number of housing starts, the number of new housing sales. Uh, the last time it, this high was in 2006. And for those of you with a long enough memory, 2006 was pretty much the peak of the housing bubble. People were buying houses with no intention of living in them and flipping and people were buying houses they couldn't afford. That's right. not happening time at all. The loaning uh, standards are very tight at banks and the anecdotal information we're getting is people are showing up with large down payments to buy these houses and we have a lot of money in the system. Um, So we don't have a problem there, but the price of houses cannot, in my opinion, rise at this rate. The fact that we have a lot of new starts, uh, the fact that the coronavirus uh, pandemic will eventually be over and people will revert to at least to some degree back to normal. Um, is, I mean, we're having a housing boom. And the other thing that's that I wanted to mention, if I could go yeah, on here. Yeah, go right ahead. IHS Market is a organization. It's M-A-R-K-I-T, by the way. I don't um, know how they have gotten this far misspelling market for so long, but they're, they're doing all right. But they, they do surveys of purchasing managers across the globe. And they do they do surveys of purchasing managers. Purchasing managers and companies are the people who buy the stuff that's going to be either used to make something or to be sold to the public. And they have to obviously, if you go to a restaurant, for instance, they have to have bought the food in advance, in anticipation of people eating there. And they that's a good indication of what the companies are saying is happening in the economy. And the they have an in, they have an index, an activity index that the IHS market comes up with, and on their index, anything above fifty is growth, and anything below fifty is uh, contraction. Their flash index of manufacturing activity was announced in March to be fifty nine point one. Not March in Friday, uh, for January is announced to be fifty nine point one. That's the highest reading in more than a decade. The service sector rose to fifty rose to fifty seven point five. Now the service sector has taken a hit before. That's where things have been the roughest. So both the service sector and the manufacturing sector are in very, very high growth position right now. Now we're they're not fully recovered from to where they were at the beginning of the year. But despite the fact that there's a record high hospitalization, near record high hospitalization, there's a record high number of new uh, COVID uh, disease cases being popped up. Despite all of that, manufacturing and the service industry that's open is doing a wonderful job of coping with it. What's happened is they have adapted to the disease. You know, this this is really weird because we're getting tremendous growth in both service and manufacturing, and we're getting a million people a week laid off from various companies. How does that match up? Well, it matches up because these companies are becoming more efficient and the ones that are not are failing and laying people off. This is a weird situation and there's a balance going on there. Jake mentioned the fact that construction is up tremendously. That's one of the reasons that the, that's the manufacturing. And that's one of the reasons that the numbers are up so high. There's some restrictions on this though. The people who are building houses are saying very clearly the price, and if you go to the if you go to Lowe's or Home Depot and try to try to buy a two before, and you understand they must be made out of gold or something, uh, the price of, the price of raw materials to build houses is astronomically high right now. 
And the other thing that's really weird, despite the fact there's a lot of layoffs, despite the fact that we have high unemployment, both manufacturers and people who are building houses and everywhere, people are saying finding skilled workers to hire is becoming extremely difficult. And why do you see you think, well, construction, anybody can work in construction. So I looked deeper into that and found out the fact that there's a shortage of electricians and plumbers. There has been a shortage of electricians and plumbers since the Great Recession. Only now we are kicked into high gear and we're building as many houses as we build during the housing bubble, but there's fewer electricians and plumbers than there were back in 2006. So we've got some constraints that we're hitting. Uh, the prices are going up on houses. That's inflationary. There's a lot of things going on in the economy, a lot of moving parts. But the big thing is housing starts tend to precede the rest of the economy, which is further evidence that in the second half of the year, we're likely to see a big economic boom. Right. Uh, we're, we're seeing prices of oil head up already. Part of that is because uh, OPEC has cut back on it. Uh, on their production of it, but it's also because we're seeing growth in the economy. We were talking about this earlier and before the program that we're seeing growth in the U.S. economy. We're starting to see a little bit of hints of shrinkage over in Europe, but we're still growing. It doesn't mean we're back to where we were. We're still at least 20% below where we were at the top in our economy. But we're starting to see the... The, the light shining through the clouds up ahead. And that means that we're going to be going back to traveling and we're going to be going back to putting houses that we've been living on and waiting to sell back on the market. That tends to deflate this stuff. It tends to make the housing market drop. Uh, if we look back, the reason why, Oh, uh, we're, you know, it's a 14 year record for existing home sales. If you go back 14 years, you'll see that uh, we had a shortage of homes on the market for a while. And there's some nice graphs on that um, uh, that our you know, economists are, are always happy about this. So when I look back at homes for sale, actually homes per 1,000 people, if we go back to the year 2000, we had 16.14 homes for, per sale, for sale per 1,000 people for per 1,000 households. At the point where we the market was totally crushed from the crash of, of uh, the Great Recession, the housing market went from uh, eight years before having be right around 16 houses uh, or 15 houses per 1,000 on, on the market to around 30 so about double the houses available for purchase as just a few years before. That's when the market crashed. We, we doubled the available supply on the market and that caused the prices to drop. This is supply and demand. It's relatively simple. Well, now we're down at a level that is about 12 and a half houses per thousand households. So we're at a point where it is, it, there are not a lot of houses for sale at the moment. And you can, you can find this on the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you have to kind of dig back a bit to find this data, but it's good stuff. It, it tells you what's going on. Why is the market so high? 
we're starting to see that number come up. Existing home sales are starting to rise. You know, when you when you say it's the most in 14 years, that's a big deal. As we're coming up out of this, people are still making their decisions in their in their day-to-day spending based on the value in their house. And this is a behavior thing. When when the market is up, doesn't matter if it's the stock market or the housing market, real estate market, or if you're a farmer, the wheat market, people tend to spend more, even if they're not receiving more as far as income because they haven't sold the thing. They're still in the house or they still have the stock market portfolio, which they haven't sold. They don't have more cash on hand, but they tend to spend more. And we're starting to see little flashes of that as well, of people who have stock market portfolios have begun to spend more. So the spending numbers, consumer spending, is starting to go up in a specific area. We're still being hit on consumer spending, but we're starting to see that recovery. And that's a little bit worrisome in some other areas. But you had something to say. For a little caveat in here, we're definitely seeing an emergence of a recovery in the economy, with particularly in manufacturing and services. And once once the soft services can come back around, once the disease starts to go down, there's a big question mark that I need to throw in here that people aren't going to like too much, but I want to say it again. I've talked about it a few minutes ago, and I'm going to talk about it again. There is a new variant of the disease coming. It easily, it, what happened? Europe is sliding into a second leg of recession pretty clearly at this point. The IHS market, uh, both uh, index for both manufacturing and for services, is below 50, which indicates their economy is shrinking and has been now for three months. What's the difference between them and us? Well, for one thing, they had this big surge when the new variant that was discovered in England dominated their areas. They had a big surge in cases and a big surge in deaths and their hospitals began to be flooded and overflowing with people. They did that, and they started shutting things down again, and this has caused their economies to start to be negative. They're going to get through it like we are, but they're they're going through a really rough spot right now. The possibility exists. There's no certainty about this, but the possibility exists when the new variant hits, things are going to get rough. I mentioned a few minutes ago that this region in the Bell County is in, in Texas, only has a very few ICU beds left. When we start running out of hospital beds and we start running out of ICU beds, there could easily be a panic that could cause this entire thing to reverse. But again, I want to emphasize, this would be temporary if it occurs. And it's something to be prepared for. Uh, Don't panic when it happens. It's temporary because the vaccinations are underway. Uh, We're going to get through this. and, And But I don't want to be, I don't want to sound like, what what's the Rosiana or whatever it is the, uh, the Pollyanna, Pollyanna the excessive optimist who says everything is going to be just fine because things are coming around and I also certainly don't want to be the pessimist who says everything is going to go to going to fall apart. Well, Again, it, what what we are doing this, this is actionable items. What we are doing, and this is something we've been doing since the beginning of the market recovery back in. April and May, is we are building up our reserves in portfolios. As as stocks are, are getting higher and higher, we are taking profits. We are um, selling a little bit extra beyond what's needed for a retirement portfolio to give income. 
to build up reserves again so that the next market downturn, there are reserves available. Uh, and why do I say the next market downturn? Because there's throughout history, there's always been a next market downturn. And we're in a great period in the market right now. Man, this sounds a lot like what we were saying last year exactly at this time. We're in a great period in the market right now, but focus on the fundamentals. Let's make sure that you have good reserves on hand. If you're taking income from your portfolio, make sure that there's a portion of your portfolio that's liquid that you can draw from when the market's down so that you're not selling in a down market. All of these are, are, are good choices to be made when the market is high. What we don't do is say the market's high, let's all go to cash because the market could go higher and then there's the danger that you'll jump back in right at the top or it could do the crash and you're right. We went to cash. All right, good job. Now the market's down. When do you get back in? When's the bottom? And what we found in market timing, study after study after study shows that most people get back in after it's higher than it was than they got out. That's not effective. So we don't try to time the market. What we do is we say when the market's doing well, we're going to take a bit extra and pad up the reserves. And when it's not doing so well, we're not going to take stuff out of the market. We're going to take it from the reserves. This seems to work fairly well. It means that we're not jumping in and out of the market and missing the boat. Man, I'm good at mixing metaphors. Let's jump out of the market into the other boat from the frying pan into the boat wait a minute. I have to add some more metaphors in there too. I want to mix them all up. Well, you can jump in the frying pan into the gravy boat. Yeah. 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 That works. Anyway, um, the back to normal Moody's back to normal Sorry. index from Moody's. Yeah. Moody's back to normal index is stuck at about 80 right now. It's actually 79 point something, but the moving average is right around 80. And that tells us the economy remains down about 20% from where it was as the pandemic began. The good news is it's not slipping further south. The bad news is it's we're still about down about 20%, and that's just a problem we have to face. Um, I'd like to see it back to 100%, but we're not there yet. And we won't get there probably until the pandemic is whipped. So do what you can. If you'd like to join the conversation, we have email waiting at Jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com as in the personal wealth coach or tango papa whiskey charlie thank you guys for listening so far presuming that you are uh if you're not listening well no thanks to you uh we'll be back on the other side with more of the personal wealth coach And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure, and on the line with me I have... Jeff McClure. And you have something to say. Yeah, a little point of trivia, unless you happen to be working for the government and didn't uh, pay your Social Security, your FICA, because the government didn't take it out of your paycheck uh, in the last quarter of last year. It's the IRS has issued guidance on that, and they will be recovering the FICA that didn't get paid during the entire year. In other words, the recovery amount won't be taken out early. It'll be straight out over the year. So you can expect that your paycheck this year, this month, and for every for the 12 months of this year is going to be somewhat lower than it was. Right. This is 
slightly better than the last guidance they issued, which was to say that they were going to start taking it out in February through the end of April, which would have given you maybe a significantly lower income <laughs> because uh, what is this? Uh, the president, President Trump last year signed an executive order saying that corporations or employers could simply decide not to withhold your social security, um, that they'd just go ahead and pay it to you, which is roughly seven, seven percent, a little over seven percent of your pay. And they made the decision for federal employees that they didn't get their did did not get the withholding taken out. Yeah. So there was a a boost to to a lot of people's pay. They got a, an increase in their pay, which is nice to have. The problem is that he didn't cancel the need to actually pay the tax. He just delayed it, which means this year, as the tax gets paid back, two things happen. Number one, the money that you were receiving, rather than having it go off to taxes, doesn't get received. You still have to pay this paycheck's social security, and you have to pay some portion of last year's social security. So you're getting an actual pay cut for the year. And this is this is the the reason why economists have trouble with the payroll tax uh, deferral as a boost to the economy because it comes with a hangover, a nasty hangover. The hangover is actually, in many ways, worse than the drunk at the beginning because uh, that you've got to pay this back. You don't want to not have social security when you're when you're done at the end of this. That's a danger. Uh, and this is it, that we're about to be starting hangover period for Social Security. If you're a government employee, if you're working for the military, thank you for your service. Hopefully your pay increase is of 1% or 2% is nice, but you're likely to get a pay decrease from what you were getting at the in December of about 14% um, or 7% for sure. And that 14% is going to get spread over the rest of the 12 months of the year. And there's another thing that's going on that's strictly esoteric. Uh, it's not something, unless you're a speculator, it's not something you can actually do anything with right now, but it's in effect. In the 20th century, the Strait of Hormuz, Hormuz I guess it is, yeah, was critical because oil flowed through there and the world ran on oil. And that's out there between uh, the Arab Peninsula and Iran. That's the Strait of It's a pretty narrow area, and the Iranians have been holding people hostage out there for a long time. So go ahead. We don't have much attention to it now because we produce a lot of oil. The, the, the point of constriction at this point in the, in the United States economy, the major point of constriction, is chip making. Yeah. There, are some phenomenal we we started with a few chips wait, put them in wait we got we got this isn't pringles this isn't ruffles these are computer chips just just as you can put salt on them but it's probably not good so go ahead we're making about a trillion chips a year collectively around the world china imports tremendous numbers of chips for a long time intel was the number one chip maker it's not anymore it's falling behind that's why they changed ceos recently and Intel has been discussing getting out of the chip business altogether. The problem we're going to run into is there's two major chip. There's NVIDIA, for example, makes specialized chips for a lot of things. And it used to be just a gaming machine, but it does 
a lot more than that right now. The point I'm trying to make is chips are the big deal. And the United States is falling behind on chips. There's two companies. There's uh, TM, TSMC. That's the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Co. And Samsung are the major chip producers in the world. And, and one is Samsung it. CEO just this week went back to prison, just as a side note. So go ahead. Automobile assembly lines in the United States have shut down recently. And there's a shortage of uh, certain vehicles like the Ford F-150. Not because there was a shortage of oil, not because there's a shortage of steel, not because of the cost of regular raw materials, but because they didn't have enough chips to keep the assembly line running. This is one of those strange things that's happened in the 21st century that kind of sneaks up on us. The, the robots are taking over. Some of the, A lot of the things in your car are run by robots already. Your fuel control is entirely controlled by a computer in your car. Your brakes are controlled by a computer. All those require electronic chips and require silicon chips that are made someplace and we're we're desiring to make things faster we talk about the economy going up with the manufacturing index rising we're desiring to make things faster with chips and chips are being made around the world it's kind of a sad thing to see intel backing out of it uh why i'm not completely sure why intel can maintain the top position on that they obviously I, did a lot of money I, i've got some insight in that um They've they've been pursuing silicon. They're they're following down that line, and we're getting to uh, a size of manufacturing that requires a completely new set of manufacturing lines, uh, new clean rooms, massive amounts of extra expenditure to get these things to work. And it's cheaper in some ways to outsource that to places that are either experimental or we're doing some other chip along that size already. And that's the thing, that, that, that is the, kind of the ground-shaking thing in the chip-making world. If Intel starts outsourcing the manufacturing, this is where intellectual property stuff starts getting in. Because AMD and Intel for years and years and years had this rivalry back and forth and one would leap forward and then the other would leap forward ahead of that one and so on. Well, now that much of the manufacturing in the world takes place in China, the danger there in intellectual property and outsourcing your designs is that your designs don't stay secret. And that could decay the value that Intel has. It's it based on its intellectual property, but if it allows somebody else to manufacture them, those same intellectual properties that they spent so much time and effort on get leaked out to the rest of the world. And now the Chinese are making it too. So there's, there's a real, there's a real danger there. To give you a buzzword that you can bore people if you, if there were cocktail parties anymore, the chips that are coming online now are the three nanometer generation of chips. And that's what Jake is talking about. It would require Intel to do a tremendous amount of investing, which would cut its earnings and would cause its stock to drop. Uh, but they would need, they would basically have to retool from zero to make chips that are operating at the three nanometer level, which is phenomenally small, but is what's happening. On the other hand, uh, what was the, the one at T? TSMC. TSMC in Taiwan is investing tremendous amounts of money back into research and development and building new facilities. As a matter of fact, they have the largest 
reinvestment research budget on the planet right now. And that's really quite impressive when you consider the Tesla is doing it and a lot of other people are doing it. And they're building new machines to make the new generation of chips. And apparently the old CEO at Intel just simply wasn't interested in investing that much money in chips. This, in new this is one of the biggest dangers of having a mature company is that you, you fall into the, the sunk cost fallacy, the, the bias of, hey, we have all this manufacturing, let's utilize it. Don't scrap it. We just spent 10 years ago, we just spent billions of dollars on that line. That's a total waste if we get rid of it. And the problem with that mentality is that you built the line so that it would be profitable and it was profitable. In order to maintain profitability, you may have to build a different line. Uh, this is something that uh, in, a, in different industries, and I can give you some parallels. When General Motors was king of the planet for auto manufacturers, um, and Toyota came to the United States with their first cars. It, they were laughable cars. I don't. I remember this from my childhood. Of you would never want to buy a Japanese car; they would just fall apart. That is not how we think of Japanese cars today. And they started with this: start at the very bottom of the food chain in the market. Start at the cheapest possible cars, and. General Motors at first said, hey, we'll, we'll outcompete them. They can't come into our marketplace and take over. So they dedicated part of their line, their manufacturing lines, to new, very cheap cars. And their profit margin was bad on those cars. They had a really bad profit margin. They were barely breaking even on, this, on these cars. They were cheap. They got a lot of complaints from owners that, hey, these are cheap cars. They're breaking and stuff. We don't, we, if we wanted a cheap car, we'd buy from Japan. So the board of General Motors, the CEO of General Motors said, hey, we're going to get out of that market. We're not even going to make it. We're going we're gonna to make more upper end cars. The margin on those is just much better, which left the Japanese Hyundai and, and to some extent later, the Korean auto manufacturers to come in without a lot of competition on the low end. And they were able to refine their manufacturing capabilities and get better at it because they were able to do it profitably, where General Motors was not. They spent too much money on the big line to do lots and lots and lots of automobile models, where at that point, Toyota just had a few models. So they were able to outcompete at the low end, which allowed them to add more lines of manufacturing to get higher end cars, just slightly higher end, and slowly has pushed General Motors and the American manufacturers of automobiles upper and upper and upper in price until now General Motors isn't the number one manufacturer of automobiles in the world. And this happens in every disrupted industry. It usually stop, starts at the bottom and heads up. And that's what Intel was trying to outsource. Some chips that weren't all that important, but the technology to make them was. That's one of the problems with the way we have corporate capitalism set up in the United States right now. Yeah. And Congress basically did it when they said there's a limit to how much you can pay your CEO in cash and still deducted from the from from your taxes, and they, so that created the stock option payment. And the stock option payment depends on the price of the stock. Well, the problem is if, if this is reported on quarterly, 
Yeah, if the CEO of Intel wants to invest a lot of money in new chip machines and new manufacturing facilities, that means that their earnings will go down temporarily while they do that. And it may take them four years to do this. If you're measuring earnings a quarterly, it looks like you're doing horribly. And the fact that we're so focused on quarterly earnings causes the stock price to drop, which means that the CEO, the decision makers basically are penalized for making long-term investments in major corporations. They get a cut in their pay because their pay is based on the stock price. There's a real problem with that system. Uh, it is not universal. For instance, in Taiwan and in Korea, they don't have that system. They can they pay the CEO based on how well they think he's doing a good job, and they're able to deduct it from their taxes, which we aren't. And that's it's one of the unintended consequences when people are saying CEOs are getting paid too much, so they can't deduct it from their taxes. Uh, Congress makes a law that interferes with the free market, and it just generally doesn't turn out well. Right, and and this that's kind of the big deal is that in order for a mature company to maintain dominance. They have to constantly be scrapping their old designs and redesigning new ones. They have to be getting rid of their big, massive complexes for manufacturing and making newer, cheaper, and more efficient ones. But that tends to cut into the bottom line a little bit. It's a much longer healthiness to the company. But that's not how we price companies right now. We're pricing companies on this quarter's earnings. And if, if that's the price, then that's going to determine the decisions that get made. This is why we had General Motors collapse. This is why uh, Intel is thinking about outsourcing when they've been all about manufacturing their entire corporate life cycle. I need to uh, correct something I said a little earlier. Dr. David Lacey, who's a member of the Texas COVID-19 expert vaccine, allocation panel and was previously the Texas Commissioner of Health said that it will be May or June before we, before we start getting vaccines for the general population. Okay. I don't All know right. what I said, but I found the article. Okay. Uh, we're about out of time for this week. If you would like to contact us off the air, you can do that through telephone. We've got voicemail waiting on the weekend and real live people. I know that's weird during the week. Uh, you can contact us locally at 254-947-1111. You can reach that same number or same line toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. And we've got recordings of the radio program going back long ways. We've got links to our podcast. You can sign up for our newsletter or read it there. You can also contact us through the contact form uh, or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we, we have a good time talking to each other for two hours a week here. It's the most we get to talk as father and son, and we really enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being a part of it. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to The Personal Wealth Coach.